0: Well, I'm glad that you're able to join us today, whether you're with us uh, here in the room on Sunday or whether you're uh, with us at church online. Uh, Thank you for being here. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. We are nearing the end of a teaching series here on My Sundays. This is part 17 this morning. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically in chapters 5, 6, and 7, in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and we've said that this passage really is about God's value system in His kingdom. Last time we were together, we looked at a very famous uh, passage, a very famous saying of Jesus. We know it as the golden rule where he commands us to do unto others what we'd have them do unto us. And we talked about that in the context of three rules for life. We called them the iron rule, the silver rule, and the golden rule. And if you missed that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that one. Uh, That was on August 2nd. Uh, You can listen on our podcast or you can watch it on demand uh, right on the messages tab on our website. And honestly, I really enjoyed teaching on the Golden Rule uh, a couple weeks ago because, I mean who doesn't like that kind of concept, right? I mean, who is against the golden rule? We all love it when people treat us according to the golden rule and we can even acknowledge that it is powerful and healthy uh, to go through life this way in relation to other people. And since we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse, line by line, and and we're almost there, uh, today is going to bring us right up to the conclusion. But first, we've got to look at these next few verses. So let's do that. Let's pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. We're in Matthew chapter 7, going to begin with verse 13. Words of Jesus, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." Now, when we read a passage like this, depending on your church background, maybe your experience with religious people, something might come to mind. Memories, maybe some mental pictures might fill your mind here. Maybe you visited a city somewhere and you had an encounter with a street preacher. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Maybe you had like a sandwich board sign. Maybe, probably had like a turn or burn message. Uh, Maybe you're remembering back to the track rack in the entryway of the church where you were a kid. Do you remember tracks, those little pocket-sized pamphlets that reduced deep spiritual concepts into an elevator pitch, like the Romans' Road to Heaven or the Four Spiritual Laws? Or if you were like really hardcore, you're thinking of the Chick Tracks with their graphic imagery, and you can still picture that peaceful-looking superhighway stretching off into a fiery inferno in the distance, while there's a little kind of walking path through a meadow leading to a glowing light or maybe a rainbow. Oh, and then there's this one uh, that's particularly terrible. Um, so I, I don't know what to say about that. Sorry, I did. I really shouldn't help promote this kind of stuff, but I got looking into this on the internet, and I went down the rabbit hole, and I just had to share these treasures with you. Um, have I mentioned that some of us church people have issues, uh, and I can't imagine why. Anyway, Anyway, whatever your experience is, whatever your mental picture is when we read this text, a passage like this brings up questions what exactly is Jesus saying? Is he really saying turn or burn? Is Jesus actually saying uh, that very few people will enter into the kingdom of God while the bulk of humanity is destined for hell? Is God playing hard to get? What is the message here? There's no way around it. This is a hard text. So before we dive in, I want to focus on one word, and it's the word way. The Greek word for way occurs 845 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's translated as a way or a road or a path, and at the base level, it refers to a literal way or road beneath your feet. But as you read the scriptures, you discover that this word way is often used to paint a word picture. It refers to someone's entire way of life, someone's patterns, their behavior, their way of thinking, we might call it their worldview. And if we were to do a quick flyover of the Bible, we would find that Jesus was not the first one to talk about there being two ways. He's picking up on an image that runs all the way through the scriptures. And if you go all the way back uh, to Genesis chapter one, where God has created the heavens and the earth, separated the light and the darkness, created the waters and the land, the birds and the animals, and then the, as the crown jewel of his creation, he, he creates humans. And then in Genesis 1, verse 28, it says, God said to them, to the humans, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God says, I've given you every plant and every tree with its fruit. You can have them for food. And then in chapter two, it says, the Lord God commanded them saying, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but... You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So from the very beginning, the two ways to live were, one, you can eat of every tree in the garden but one, and you can have life with God and closeness with him, and no shame between you and God or between you and other people. You can live life to the full as God intended for humans to live. Or two, you can eat from this tree... The consequences will be death, and and you know the story. Humanity chooses the second option, and in that moment, death entered the world. And notice notice death was not only a future destination, but the present byproduct of their decision. But if you know the story, God committed to restoring humanity back to the way he intended. He says so as early as chapter 3 of Genesis. And then years and years later, in chapter 12 of Genesis, he calls Abraham and his, follow, and his family to follow him. And the plan was that through Abraham and his family, God would restore blessing and goodness and flourishing and wholeness. Jesus called it abundant life. And of course, the descendants of Abraham came to be the nation of Israel. Not necessarily the nation of Israel that we know today, but the Israelite people of the Old Testament. And as the nation of Israel followed the way of the God of Abraham, they knew him as Yahweh, Yahweh would eventually restore beauty and blessing and peace and life through them to the world. And if you know the biblical story, time and time again, the people of Israel are faced with a choice between two ways. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives this big speech to the people of God before they enter into the promised land. And woven through this speech is an invitation to the way. Deuteronomy 5, verse 33, these are the words of Moses. He says, You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live. So Moses is asking them to make a decision. Something is demanded of them. They must choose. That's the call choose the way of Yahweh, and that invitation shaped the people of Israel. It shaped the way that they thought, the way that they lived, the way they treated one another, the way they treated their enemies and foreigners. It shaped the way they worshiped The Jewish prophet Isaiah later described the people of Israel saying, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Isaiah acknowledges the human condition, the human tendency to turn away from the way that God has laid out for us. The preferred path towards human living. He starts to talk about the the coming of, in his words, the servant of Yahweh. And the servant would take on the consequences of our straying, our sin, and he'd make a new way. And he would lead us into this new way. In fact, he would be the embodiment. He would even refer to himself as the way. Of course, the prophet Isaiah was talking about Jesus. So the New Testament begins in Matthew with the account of the birth of Jesus, and the baptism of Jesus, and the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, and then right into this teaching that we've been in for eight months now, the Sermon on the Mount. So as Jesus approaches the end of his sermon, he offers his listeners a choice, a choice between two ways. Up to this point, Jesus has been laying out his vision for what it looks like to live life in the kingdom. This is his manifesto. This is God's value system. And right here he turns the corner from teaching to a decision point. So as his, so his listeners on that day and readers, people like you and me, we've now heard his vision for life in the kingdom. And this isn't just about the afterlife, heaven someday in the sweet by and by. I mean, it is about that, but it's also about life in the here and now. The kingdom of God is here now. So we've heard all about life in the kingdom. And now we're faced with the question of how will we respond to that? And by the way, it will require something of us. So, verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate. So, imagine that you've been approaching an ancient city. The city would have large walls all around it. Then, at certain points along the wall, there would be gates gates for citizens and visitors to go in and out of the city. These gates varied in size, some of them would be wide enough for teams of oxen with wagons, for a whole crowd to go through all at once. Others would be just small enough for, for, for just one person to go through. And typically, the gate that you would enter would determine the road that you would travel or the way that you would take. Think of it in terms of our modern cities. A few months ago, Lethe and I were uh, in Dallas uh, Dallas has one of the most amazing highway systems in the, in the country. Uh, I learned to drive in the Dallas Metroplex, and I, I loved going back this year. It's been 22 years since we'd uh, visited there, and I, I loved driving on those highways. Uh, this is a picture of the High 5 Mixmaster at the intersection of Central Expressway and I-635. It's a five-level stack interchange. It's 140 feet tall. That's 12 stories tall. Carries over half a million cars a day. This is also a road in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. This is Texas Route 5 in McKinney, a city in the DFW Metroplex where we met some friends for barbecue when we were there in January. My point is, if we think of a gate in verse 13 in terms of a highway exit in a modern U.S. city, the exit you take determines a kind of road that you end up on. So the gate that you enter sets you up for the trajectory for where you travel, Jesus' call to enter the narrow gate is a call to make a decision about our way, about what we will do, about ultimately who we would become. In other words, it's a call to make a decision about how to respond to Jesus. And this isn't about a one and done, go to heaven when you die, fast pass. It's a decision that leads to a way, a way of life in the kingdom of God. Let's get into a little Bible study. You ready for that? Verse 13, again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So first, I want you to notice the overall structure of this passage. First, you have enter, which is a command, an imperative, and then for, you could read because, in other words, do this for this reason. So the passage is a warning. Secondly, notice the duality. We have two opposite gates that lead to two opposite ways and two opposite destinations with two opposite groups. Jesus uses the two roads or the two ways as a metaphorical device. He's simplifying all of our life decisions down to two so that we can feel the weight of the decision that's at hand. He wants us to be challenged, to maybe even be uncomfortable, to be moved to make a decision. And then finally, there are four word pairings, wide and narrow, easy and hard, destruction and life, many and few. And I want to look at those. So let's begin with wide and narrow. A wide gate is a gate that anything could go through. A wide gate is one in which anything goes. You don't have to change course. You don't have to pivot or shimmy your way through the wide gate. In fact, you don't have to leave anything behind to enter through it. Uh, The wide gate is the default gate, the gate that you naturally go through. To enter this gate and ultimately follow the way that it leads to, you don't have to change a thing. So it looks like this. Come on Sundays, watch online, hear the teachings of Jesus, and do nothing about it. That is the wide gate. The wide gate is the gate of you do you, you do what feels good to you, do what makes you happy. That's the wide gate. Meanwhile, to enter the narrow gate, to call Jesus Lord, is to change course. It's to break from your default way of doing things. And if you're going to follow Jesus, to enter through his gate and ultimately practice his way, you'll likely have to leave something behind. Something will have to change, which leads to the next set of adjectives, easy and hard. If you're paying attention, you might notice some translation differences here. I usually use the NIV, the New International Version. It uses the word broad. The ESV, or the English Standard Version, which I'm using today for this passage, uses the word easy. And they're both fair translations, broad and narrow, easy and hard. But I think easy and hard is easier for us to identify with. So what is the easy way? The easy way is life uninterrupted. And it's appealing because there's no effort required to live this way, to make decisions for yourself, and ultimately to not follow Jesus is the easier way. And what I found is that following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. And we know that easy things are rarely good and good things are rarely easy. We know that just from doing life. Good things tend to take hard work, and intentionality, and discipline, and maybe sacrifice. And listen, following Jesus is no different. And Jesus isn't even shy about this. He invites us to follow him on the hard way. On more than one occasion, uh, he says following him is like picking up a cross and carrying it to your own death. Yeah, so there's that. How about this one? Destruction and life. The word translated destruction is a pretty general term that just means ruin or waste and it implies the idea of something being destroyed and in doing so forfeiting the purpose for which it was created. So when we follow the wide easy default way, when we do what comes naturally and we don't change and we don't bother to enter the narrow gate, we don't follow Jesus, the reality is that we forfeit our purpose. We destroy our ability to thrive as humans and we wreak havoc on everyone around us and our life could be be described as wasted. On the other hand, life is a term that is functionally interchangeable with kingdom of God. So in Matthew's gospel, life, kingdom, salvation are all interchangeable words and concepts in his mind. So Jesus is saying, follow me, live out my way, and the result will be life in the kingdom of God, that you'll experience true life when you follow me, life as it's supposed to be here and now. Remember the good news that Jesus preached was that the kingdom of God was at hand, was in our grasp. In the Gospel of John, he says, anyone who believes in me has, present tense, has eternal life. So the good news of Jesus is not just about going to a good place up in the clouds when you die, and that's kind of part of it or some version of that. But when we follow Jesus now, we get a taste of life to the full in the present, And yes, we anticipate the coming day when God will make all things new, when God the Father wipes the tears from our eyes, when Jesus reigns forever and ever. But until then, we get to live life in the kingdom now. So we have wide and narrow, easy and hard, destruction and life, and then finally, many and few. So let me begin with what I don't think Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is simply saying that few people will enter the kingdom of God. And in the same gospel account, Jesus says, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So when we read this text, we have to remember that this is the same Jesus who declares the least likely People, you know, to be blessed, right? Uh, This is the same Jesus who invites his followers to love uh, their enemies, Uh, the same Jesus who advocates for the poor, the same Jesus who ultimately sends his disciples to every nation. At the center of the heart of God is a God who aches that none would perish. And instead of inviting all into life, all to enter through the narrow gate, all to experience life to the full, all can come and follow Jesus. See, that is the heart of God. What Jesus is saying is that to follow him is to be, regardless of the, the time period or the era, okay? To follow him is to be in the cultural and societal minority. That when you follow Jesus, you should not expect to look around and see a lot of other people following him as well. And the reality is that there is a tension there. Now, it could be that Jesus is calling you to follow him, to make that first decision to enter through the narrow gate, to follow Jesus and to experience true life. Maybe you've been in and out of church. Maybe you've come on some Sundays. Maybe, you know, maybe Jesus is inviting you to no longer just treat his teachings like uh, an interesting or cute idea. Instead, he's begging you, follow me. Follow me and have life to the full. Part of what I love about this passage is that Jesus doesn't seem to care how long you've been on the easy road, whether you've just passed through the wide gate and you've only taken a few steps down the path on the other side or whether most of your life has been on the easy path or the default path. Listen, no matter how many miles you have behind you on this road, Jesus says, enter here, take this exit now, let this morning be your on-ramp, follow me and have life. So wherever you are in following Jesus, I think the call for us, whether you've wandered just a little bit or you've wandered a lot, the call for us is to enter the narrow gate, to declare with our lives that Jesus is Lord, and then to keep following him and to trust that to follow him leads to life. I want to take a few minutes and read this next section, these next nine verses, and just offer a few thoughts to kind of set us up for Jesus' conclusion uh, in a couple weeks' time. Let's read these next few verses, starting with verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So, all right let's back up. When Jesus says false prophets in verse 15, he's talking about people who claim to be speaking for God, but in actuality aren't. So in our church tradition, we don't use the word prophets. uh, So we wouldn't call them prophets. We're more likely to call them pastors or authors or podcasters or bloggers or something like that. Same idea. In context, If we think about a prophet as a guide, someone to help you and I navigate the journey of life, uh, then a false prophet is definitely someone who would point you down the wrong path. And Jesus says these false prophets are difficult to spot. He says they come to you in sheep's clothing. False prophets don't always look like heretics. Sometimes they look like other followers of Jesus, meaning you can't just take people at face value, especially those who claim to speak on behalf of God, and the irony of a pastor saying that is thick, and I'm well aware of it. So this raises the question, how do you tell a true prophet from a false one? So Jesus has three tests, for lack of a better word, three tests. One is the life test. So look at verse 16. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So fruit here is a metaphor for what comes out of your life. He's talking about integrity. He's talking about character. So test one is take a close look at their life, their character, but all by itself, test one is not enough to spot a false prophet or a false teacher. Uh, For for starters, uh, Jesus doesn't define good fruit. So it'd be really easy uh, to kind of import our own idea of good here. So here's the thing. We need an anchor point for our definition of good and evil, right? So what is good? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? What is beautiful? What is true? We need an anchor point. And for us as followers of Jesus, that anchor point is Jesus himself and all of his teaching that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's interpreted through the writings of the rest of the New Testament, which leads us to test number two, the teaching test. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in Matthew's uh, frame of reference, Jesus' teaching is the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is Jesus' teaching. So for Jesus, listen carefully, the life test is good, but it isn't enough by itself. It's not enough for somebody to be a good person or even to produce good fruit, but to look really carefully at the content of what it is they are teaching. And I can't help but think of Paul's warning to Timothy, uh, one spiritual leader to another. He writes this in 1 Timothy 4. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So, a great diagnostic question to ask when you have that podcast in your ear, or you're reading that book, or you're listening to me or whoever it is. And you're thinking, is this person on track or off or somewhere in between? A great diagnostic question is this, is "Is this person's teaching moving my heart to obey Jesus? Does this make me want to do the will of the Father as Jesus laid it out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Or does this teaching make me doubt? Does it play loose and free with interpretation? Does it explain things away in order to kind of justify my life and me doing what I want? So this is where we have to be rooted, especially in the teachings of Jesus and in the writings of the New Testament. You've got to test everything I say here Everything Pastor Bob says here, everything that guy on TV has to say, everything you hear on that podcast, everything that guy on Facebook has to say, everything that anybody has to say, the litmus test is Scripture, and in particular for the follower of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is saying, don't fall for the sales pitch. Don't be naive. Don't fall for the con of Christian-y language. jesus language from the right or from the left, in the church or in school or in politics, jesus language does not equal Jesus' teaching. So test one is the life test. Test two is the teaching test. Here's test three, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, so there's the Christian language again. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, if this doesn't make you a touch uncomfortable, I'm not sure how thoroughly you're reading your Bible, right? Because first of all, Jesus is not teaching here on like salvation, who's in, who's out at the end of the age. He's teaching on false prophets who claim to be followers of Jesus. He's warning about somebody who claims to speak on behalf of Jesus, but is not actually in relationship with Jesus. So for Jesus a good life and good teaching still are not quite enough. He sets the bar even higher, as he tends to do. So there's one last thing, and it might be the most important thing. One last test. Does this teacher have a personal relationship, a genuine, authentic, no PR, no spin relationship with Jesus? Do they know Jesus? That word, I never knew you, it's the Greek word not for head knowledge but for relational knowledge. It's not I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's I know my wife, Aletheia. And then Jesus talks about that day. Did you catch that phrase? Many will say to me, on that day. What day is Jesus talking about? Well, that's first century verbiage for what the Jews called the day of the Lord or we would call it judgment day. So on that day All of our secrets will be laid bare. There'll be no more spin, no more image curating on social media, no more filters, no more non-disclosure agreements, no more hush money, no more secrets, no more whispering in the shadows. Everything is out in the open and dealt with once and for all for the judge of the universe. So here's a tricky thing about test three, the relationship test. How can we test for this? Think about that. We can't. We can't test for this. You can pray. You can discern. You can lean into wisdom. You can trust the Holy Spirit for illumination and for clarity. So what in the world do we do with this? How do we ever walk out of here feeling good? How do we go on with our day feeling good about this? What is it that Jesus has for faith community on this August Sunday? I've kind of been wrestling with this for a while, and this is one of the things about teaching through Scripture kind of line by line. Because I would probably never pick to teach on, on this particular, these particular verses, but uh, we committed to walking through the Sermon on the Mount, so this was up for today. So what is it that Jesus wants us to do with this? So much of the way of Jesus is about watchfulness and awareness of the reality of the kingdom all around us. And I think Jesus wants to create a community of thoughtful people, people who are watchful, people who are rooted in the scriptures, people who are anchored in a worldview that is shaped by the teachings of Jesus, the values of the kingdom of God. And what if we were to not just be aware and beware of false prophets, what if we were to become true prophets, the truth-tellers, with our family, with our friends, in our church. What if we were to do life in such a way where we live in the reality of Jesus' kingdom every day, all day long? Where we anchor our mind in the reality of the kingdom of God and we live that out all day? What if out of that we were to devote our lives to obedience, to the teachings of Jesus, to doing the Father's will? What if out of that we were to bear fruit, fruit that is of a life that is transformed by relationship with the one who came to bring us life as our loving Heavenly Father intended and dreamed for us to experience? Can you imagine the kind of light, the kind of beacon, just a little community of Christ followers could become to a city, a community that so desperately needs it? Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you and we're grateful and we're humbled by your invitation. Humbled that you would invite us to be a part of what you're doing in the world. So my prayer today is simply that we would live our lives in such a way that we are worthy of this calling, that we would open our hearts to the values of your kingdom, that we would approach life on a daily basis Leaning into the reality of the kingdom of God. That we would be watchful and thoughtful and anchored in a view of the world that is shaped by the things that you taught us and the way that you showed us how to live life. As we choose to live life that way, to choose the narrow gate that leads to life in your kingdom, even in the here and now, may we, this group of believers we call Faith Community, May we become the kind of light, the kind of beacon of hope that our community so desperately needs. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.